So how I usually like to start these these conversations and, and these episodes is about an individual's journey. And uh, you know, usually when I speak to people, they're they're doing something very impactful and basically might be their life's work in, in a lot of different areas, right? They're, they're dedicating years of their life to it. A lot of time, a lot of, a lot of effort, a lot of long nights and days. So I always love to start with sort of the origin story and, and how, you know, that light bulb moment goes off a little bit and, and they see an issue and they want to solve it through a certain mechanism that they want to create. So just talk about the origins of news story and a little bit about what it is exactly. Sure. So the origins of a news story come after a a trip that I took to Haiti a couple years after the 2010 earthquake. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I went down there, it was actually for uh, another startup that I had that was not a, uh, a charity, it was a for-profit startup. And we were going to give a little bit of the money we were making back to a charity. And so that's how I kind of got exposed to extreme poverty, uh, especially in international development. Mm-hmm. And I went down and had no clue that I was going to have uh, a passion for uh, for families who don't have adequate shelter or, you know, had no idea that New Story would come from that trip. But that was a trip that really just captured my heart, captured uh, my interest in trying to create an organization that would kind of do things differently and try to get at the problem in a, in a more unique way. And after that trip, um, when I was exposed to families that were uh, living really just in tarp tents because their homes were destroyed during the 2010 earthquake, uh, I just got to see and feel and smell what it was like when uh, you don't have like most basic human needs, which is safety and shelter. Mm-hmm. And you're living in a, you know, a tarp tent with uh, just on dirt pretty much and no protection from any uh, intruders, storms, animals creeping in, uh, your roof falling down at night, about as, as bad as it gets. And so that was my exposure. And I um, kind of came back and I was pretty young. I was 24. So, and I didn't have experience in the nonprofit world really at all. And so I didn't think about starting my own organization. I tried to go find other organizations that I could get really excited about. Right. Um, and the more I looked, the more I, at least from my perspective, came across a different problem, which was a lot of organizations I looked at um, while they were seemingly doing great work, they were all kind of solving it in a, in a very traditional, uh, a little more old school way and method. Right. And to me, I thought that was something to to try to change up or, or to at least at least to try to take a swing um, in a different way. And so that from an entrepreneurial perspective was the reason why I thought it made sense to actually start an organization instead of just join one that I really mm-hmm. cared about um, was because I said, hey, what if a clean slate from day one I could create the DNA and the operating principles and my board and all these things that were going to be founded really on, you know, innovation and taking calculated risk taking and um, trying to be a more, a more modern um, organization, uh, mm-hmm. next generation kind of organization. And that's how, that's how we got started. That was the, the origin of it all. And that was uh, 2015. What I love about your path is that you went through sort of the Y Combinator route, which is usually set aside, right, for, for startups and, and eventually trying to build sort of unicorns as sort of one of the best startup accelerators in the world. And you mm-hmm. don't see many individuals come out of that, take the path of building a nonprofit, 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, so how, I, I imagine that experience was really valuable. And, oh, yeah. And did sort of that, did that help immensely in, in building out, like you said, a modern sort of organization, maybe from a founder perspective in a, yeah. you know, a, a fast-paced startup, taking that to, to mm-hmm. sort of the nonprofit world? Yeah, it was very much aligned with the kind of, kind of founding vision of how we were going to build out the culture and the team. So from my perspective, um, I thought when you're, when you're trying to work on such a massive problem with just an extraordinary amount of complications and systems issues and just all types of things that are so hard, like why would you not recruit the same caliber of team that would work at some of the best startups um, mm-hmm. really in the world? And why would you not have such a high standard for the kind of talent and the kind of team that you were going to build and recruit? Because it's such a hard problem. You need, you need, you know, really great people working on this. And that just felt like a disconnect to me. Um, it felt like the kind of people that would go to Silicon Valley to build great startups. You really, you, you, I don't think a, a person, on, you know, would say those are the kind of people that are going to go join uh, a traditional charity, right? Mm-hmm. There's just a disconnect. Right. Yeah. And to me, that never made sense. Why? Why? Right? Like there's a pay piece of it for sure, but yeah. you can, there's other ways to offer, you know, a really great experience besides from pay. And I think you can pay people well, but that's a different conversation. And so that was part of the founding vision. And so Y Combinator was, I mean, really just an, an accelerant to what we already had planned. So when we, when we got in there, um, that then helped us get really our first core donor base, which mm-hmm. mostly were folks in tech or venture capital, um, mm-hmm. given just Y Combinator's network. Yep. Um, and then from there, we kind of, you know, started recruiting our first few team members that also somewhat came from the startup or technology world. Um, and then it just kind of snowballed from there. Um, and then, of course, we're, you know, we do international development. So we need people that are excellent at international development as well, which we, yep. which we got from the beginning too. But yeah, I mean, your DNA and how you start, it just, it, the good news is that if you're, if you're an entrepreneur or you're, you know, aspiring to start something, you get to control that. Yeah. And once you start, things get, things get set pretty quickly. And so you need to be really clear up front about how what you're doing is going to be different. And what are, what is your, you know, what are your aspirations for the kind of people that you want to join, the kind of culture that you want to build? And then you got to be incredibly intentional about um, making that happen in the beginning. So let's talk a, a little bit about what the organization does, right? It's sort of mission, because obviously it's, you know, it's one of the biggest issues in the world, right? I mean, housing is, is something that, you know, maybe here in, in sort of North America, it's not as prevalent. I mean, obviously we have mm-hmm. homelessness at a great scale in some cities, but just for Haiti, for example, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's such a different, you know, the poorest yeah. country in the Western Hemisphere. It, it's different when you drive there, right? And, and you see it. So like how, I guess initially when, when New Story happened, was it just building a, a community of housing from just local builders, right? Raising money. I remember when you first started, it, it had people were basically raising money as their birthday, right? Instead mm-hmm. of giving me gifts, mm-hmm. landing pages that said, hey, for my birthday, you know, give 25 bucks. We're going to try to build a home. Uh, for a family in Haiti after the earthquake. And that seemed to do really well. And so let's start from there of, of what New Story was and maybe how it matured to, to kind of what it is now. So the first thing we were trying to, to solve for, um, and there's been evolutions of this as, as a company grows, but you know, the first problem we were trying to solve for was uh, aside from the obvious problem, I always say, what's the problem behind the obvious problem? So the mm-hmm. obvious problem is the kind of the, the broader mission of the organization. And that's essentially families lacking adequate shelter and, and, and poverty and stifled from reaching their potential because of that. But then it's like, okay, what are other problems 
that are are a you know our gate to 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 advancing our mission. And so one of the first ones we saw was a, a lack of confidence and transparency and trust in international charities. And so mm-hmm. we yeah. knew, especially coming out of kind of since we were founded in Haiti after the earthquake, there was a lot of issues after that natural disaster when it came to um, transparency. And there were a couple really popular probably maybe the wrong word, but there were a lot of articles that got a lot of awareness about that. And yeah. I and I think it just it, it kind of tainted people's um, impression of should I should I give my you know hard earned money to international organization? And the right. pain point for, for that person was, well, I don't really know exactly where it's going. I don't know um, what percent is actually going. I don't know if it's actually going to make an impact. I don't know what the data will be. And it just feels somewhat like a black hole. And that was kind of the status quo. That's what people expected. And so in the very beginning, we said, hey, we want to triple down on creating a more transparent um, and better donor experience. Because we thought if we could do that, we could unlock more philanthropic money to ultimately build you know, more housing. And so that was how we first started. And yeah, we made an online platform that would uh, directly connect um, donors to the families that they were going to help. Uh, it was like a you know, crowdfunding kind of campaign where you could see uh, the family, you could see how much the home cost. We put up every single cost that went into the house. So it was very transparent about what you were funding. And then when the family moved into that new home, uh, our local partners took a, a quick little video and you could see the end result of what you helped create. And 100% of your donation would go towards building that house. So you had these two experiences. One was uh, I give, and I don't really know exactly where it's going, out of what percent is actually going, out of the end result. And then we came in and said, hey, we feel those pains, and we reverse engineered an experience to be the opposite of that. And that got a lot of traction. And from a uh, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, we tripled down on that message, right? We tripled down on it mm-hmm. because we, and we went after a market of people that we knew probably felt that. And so we said, hey, we feel what you're feeling. That's why we did this. Right. So, so how do you, how do you connect with your audience that, um, how do you find an audience that feels the same that you do? And how do you, you know, hit on a problem that you know they have? And, and also we would really call out the problem. Um, and then by calling out the problem, it was then, you know, an opportunity to say, oh, and, you know, we of course have, have a solution for this. That's how we got started. And then it just, you know, kind of grew from there of saying, well, what's the next problem behind the problem that we want to work on? Um, and they kept going. And so for, for the, the houses, like you said, I mean, they're, they're sort of traditional homes that are being built by, is it by like the local community? Uh-huh. You provide yeah. like the financing and then you pay obviously, you know, workers to, to build the homes. Is that mm-hmm. sort of how the, the structure works to, to this day at least? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So pretty much all of our homes, gosh, 90, I don't know exact percentage, but close to hundred percent mm-hmm. are built by local workers um, using all local materials. And so that's, that's how it's done. We provide uh, supplies, local jobs. Um, it does help the local economies. Um, we believe it's more scalable and efficient to do it that way, as opposed mm-hmm. to trying to mobilize a large volunteer force or bring in materials from that are not local. And that's, that's how we've been able to do now with over 3,000 homes. And, and we like that model. And we're going to you know, try to figure out how to had a 10x and 100x that number. <laughs> and do you think the 3D element of things can be the catalyst to 10x that? I, I kind of want to dive into a little bit of a mm-hmm. little bit of that and see where we are within sort of the 3D 
you know, printing homes era. Cause I, I think that is an interesting way where we could solve maybe some of the domestic homeless issues too, is, is sort of how do we create homes sort of quickly and, and have them be, you know, solid, right. And be there for, for a long time. Right. So how, I guess, where are we at within the 3d printing world of, of building homes and, and how, how is that even gone? Was that something that you were head scratching about? Cause I think icon icon was your partner on that. How did that all even start to even think you could build a home from like a 3D printer, right? It's pretty wild in itself. Yeah, it's definitely wild, but we, and it, there's still a long way to go on it for sure. But, you know, we just, we try to, we try to project ourselves out, you know, five, 10 years and imagine, you know, how are certain technologies going to be then? And is there a use case for the families that we care about and the families that we serve? And so um, we do believe that uh, robotic construction in housing is going to be a thing um, mm-hmm. over the next decade. The timetable of how quickly that happens is kind of all up in the air, right? And with a, such a big problem like this, we you have to take a long time horizon. Yeah. Um, it's this constant dichotomy of you, of course, want to act with urgency. You, of course, people are suffering, so you want to help now. But if you only focus on helping in the short term, you're not going to come up with the you know kind of like quantum leap breakthroughs that we believe you need to put a bigger dent in the problem long term. So, you know, this is definitely a longer term play and bet for us um, with 3D printing and um, additive manufacturing. Um, it's a really advanced material science that's being used. And uh, yeah, I mean, we just, we were familiar with 3D printing, um, robotic construction. I was fortunate to come across um, an early, extremely early stage startup um, called Icon. I got introduced to their founders and we hit, a, hit it off and um, New Story uh, became their first partner, um, their first R&D partner. And uh, we said, hey, we, are, we believe this is a risk worth taking. Uh, we are not going to bet the company on it, but mm-hmm. we're going we're gonna to give it a good swing for sure. And we took that risk and fortunately it paid off um, so far where uh, we ended up creating the first 3D printed house in the U.S. Um, we then went on to, in 2019, uh, create the world's first 3D printed community of homes down in mm-hmm. Mexico. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it was a good start. It was a very long way to go, but that was some of our thought process, thought process on it. We always like to have, you know, longer term, big picture, more risky, but if they work, could change everything bet. And then, of course, we still want to have um, a very consistent direct impact quarter over quarter. And so it's as a leader, you're always thinking through what's the short term, what's the long term. And, you know, we don't focus 100% on either one. It's always kind of a, a back and forth. Yeah, no, it's 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 an amazing, it's an amazing, I guess, idea. And then I guess the one question I have with mm-hmm. whether it's, you know, automation within, you know, driverless cars and, and 3D homes, right? Is because uh-huh. we just we just had the we just kind of touched on the the effects that, you know, you're actually employing people locally, right? Mm-hmm. Through through building mm-hmm. of the homes. And would the eventual, you know, maturity and technology and building homes take away from that, right? Is there a balance that could be struck where we don't lose those jobs in building these homes because, you know, these robotic sort of buildings become, you know, so efficient to build and produce? Is there a way we could still, you know, keep the local jobs, right, but still have scale in in building homes? Our answer is it's both. We think that you're always going to need manual labor to to build homes at scale. Mm -hmm. Uh, We think that you don't have to have manual labor building 100% of the home. Um, we think that you should take out as much of the manual labor as humanly possible. So 
And you ask why? Well, the answer is because you need a lower cost house. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. to get a lower cost house, labor is a big piece of it. And if you could do a, a, a home for a lower cost, well, then in theory, you could do a higher volume of homes. And right. so you're still going to have um, job. You're, you're always going to have, we believe, uh, like you're always going to have manual labor on housing. You need, you have to lay the foundation. Mm-hmm. You want to do put on the roof and the doors, plumbing, all of that stuff, right? It's going to be done manually. And so we are trying to find innovations that can do a large chunk of the home construction process that can be automated or can be done at a lower cost. And will it take some jobs away? Probably. But to us, it's way, way, way more important for families and children that are living pretty much in life-threatening conditions um, to have a safe home where they can actualize their potential and grow up in and actually have a chance to like live out their dreams as opposed to, you know, helping a construction worker make a little extra money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we think that you think, we think that you can do both. When, when talking about the community in Mexico from the 3d printed homes, that community, I guess one, how did you even find the community? Right. And like talking with local people there, you know, it's like, was it a difficult process to go into a community and be like, Hey, we're going to build like 3d printed homes. Like how is that, is that different? from legally and like local governments to talk to them about building this type of home versus, or this type of community versus like, you know, normal housing that you build in sort of other areas? Yeah. I mean, look, there's always, when you're doing any kind of (laughs) new technology, that's part of it. Right. And that's any technology and, you know, pretty much throughout history. And so I think it's just an adoption process where people are, are rightfully so going to be a little skeptical up front and question. And you got to be smart about where you want to get your proof of concept. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for us, the most important thing was optimizing for safety. And mm-hmm. so that meant um, doing a lot of things that we actually paid more money for to ensure that families were going to be safe in their homes. So, you know, we over-indexed on, you know, the foundation. We made walls even strong. Like we did all types right. of things that were very above and beyond and cost way more to, to ensure family safety. Right. And so... And then, you know, after you get, you know, I don't know the right number, but call it a couple hundred homes done, you may not need to do that as much in the future. And so, right. um, and you just, people need to see it. They need to feel it. They need, they need to build, you need to build confidence. And then over time, you know, they have to want it, right? The, the customer is always going to have to want the product or the new innovation. You know, Bezos has this quote where he talks about um, the only, the only things that are innovative are the ones that get adopted, right? Hmm. So you know, if Amazon makes a bunch of crazy, awesome new technology, but nobody uses it, that's, that's actually not innovative, right? It's like, right. I would say pointless. Yep. Um, and so the only, the only innovation is things that are adopted by customers. And so you have to see, do they like this? Do they want this? And that's up to the innovator to figure out. What have you and the team learned from, because it looks like you're in four countries now, thousands of homes built. What has, what has been some of the, the big takeaways from building that many homes, working in that many countries? What have you learned throughout that process? Yeah, so kind of the, the key principle for us at New Story is finding the best local partners and local talent yeah. and just doubling down on them. Mm-hmm. So we, we don't, we're not going to be experts in, or have long-term relationships in you know, a village in Haiti or a village in right. rural Mexico. So we got to do a really good job at identifying and discovering the best local 
partners and talent there, and then form really smart and good relationships with them where all incentives are aligned um, really from new story, uh, a local partner that's usually a nonprofit, and then a, a local uh, government or municipality. And, you know, we have a process now that is you know, somewhat similar to an RFP of designing mm-hmm. and building a community and things all need to be aligned up front. And you got to just be really smart about where you go to work and make sure you have that alignment. If you don't have the alignment, you're, you're setting yourself up for failure. And we've, we've learned of really what is most important up front and every community that we build and the more we expand, we're learning from all of our previous communities. And so our, our intelligence around this is just getting better and better because we, you know, put a, put a really high value on um, a value we have called improved through learning where we're just constantly learning and getting better and it's just making the process better. Mm -hmm. I want to talk a little bit about the maturity of the nonprofit, maybe sector and innovation within that. Mm -hmm. What have you learned, you know, being, you know, a nonprofit yourself, right. And not sort of, you know, being a company, you know, that's for profit. There's, there's sort of similar elements in how you grow and scale, but obviously it's different from, you know, a venture capital standpoint and the cap table and you have different things you have to worry about growing and scaling with, with sales and things like that. What have you got, I guess, learned about the nonprofit sector that one, maybe you didn't like and want to change, right? Cause I think there's a lot of, a lot of innovation that could happen in the nonprofit sector. Like, I guess as a whole, you know, in 2020, like how do you look at the nonprofit space and, and are you optimistic that the nonprofit space can continue to innovate and become more trusted, right? Become more transparent. Mm. So there's not this, there's not this tug and pull of like, oh, should I, you know, spend money? You should I donate to this nonprofit? Because the the quote that I, I saw you had, I think summed it up perfectly, where you said, "The problem is not that people don't want to help others. The problem is they don't know who to trust mm. and whether their money will actually make a difference in someone's life, right? Yeah. So how to yeah. like, how can we innovate the nonprofit sector where? That's never asked again, right? That that's a I think that's always been an issue. And now I think with founders like you coming in, I think there's a way we can sort of dissolve that, right? And kind of eliminate that from people's consciousness, hopefully. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I mean look, it's uh I mean my honest take is there are definitely some encouraging examples, but I think at large I'm more I'm just being honest, probably more pessimistic. The biggest gap, are, one is talent. And how do you incentivize mm-hmm. right. great talent to yeah. join these orgs that are capable and competent of creating things that really scale and work? So I think that's problem number one to solve. And that has all to do with, you know, how people think that folks that work at a nonprofit should be compensated. It's how, you know, more old school board of directors are put together and, you know, mm-hmm. they've known one way for the last 25 years and like, are you really going to change it? And how would that be perceived? So that is probably, in my opinion, the number one thing, if you got right, would create more impact and scale for these mm-hmm. problems, right? Like, it's like, if you, if you were trying to work on a better financial access tool to help families in poverty get certain kind of loans, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Would you rather have 20 people that left Uber that are engineers and product designers and excellent growth marketers, or would you rather have a more traditional 20 people that are coming from like, a, you know, kind of an old school nonprofit? Right. What do you think would ha- who do you think would be able to get that to 
to reach a million people in need, mm-hmm. right? And would it be worth paying the team coming from Uber? I'm not going to know exact number, sure, but sure. five times the amount that you would pay the other group. I would argue a hundred percent, right? Yeah. Like if your yeah. end goal is getting to a million people and doing it quickly, like how do you set up systems and incentives and alignment and expectations to do that? And I think, especially in America, you know, charities and nonprofits, you say it and people just have a certain image that comes yeah. to their mind. Yeah. And they think volunteer, nice people, actually not all. Um, I obviously I'm stereotyping what sure. a lot of folks would think or say, which is of course, as we know, not always true. And they're, yeah. I, I actually don't believe it's that true, but that's what they'll think. And they'll think, Oh, they need to be paid, you know, a smaller amount because I'm getting there. Right. And so I think that's just a massive problem. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know how and when that gets solved. I think some organizations got to just kind of band together and say, Hey, there was the old school model yeah. and you know, welcome to the next decade. And this is how we're going to set things up. And you got to get funders aligned to that. You got to get boards. You got to get exec teams aligned to that. That was, if I could wave a magic wand and do one thing, it would be that. Because I, I just believe that's how you're going you're gonna to impact the most people. Do, do you think that there's perhaps maybe too many nonprofits and that, like you said, um, maybe if they banded together to solve certain issues, you could pay people more. You can have a leaner team, right? But you can yeah. have, you could pay them a lot more. So you get very, very high end talent. Yeah. Um, you know, like, yeah. Yeah, it's, look, there's a lot of different theories out there, right? But I mean, there's just, yeah. there, I think there has to be innovation somewhere is because there's a lot of stuff not getting solved, right? I mean, as it comes down to it, there's, there's, there's stuff that, uh, especially in, in North America, I think there's, there's, there's just a, a, so many issues that for some reason we, we can't, we can't solve. And frankly, the rest of the world are solving it faster than we are in, in some areas. Yeah, for sure. I, I yeah, I, I definitely think, I mean, look, there's a lot of problems. So I think having a lot of orgs work on it is probably a net positive, but mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you know, at, at large, I think there's too many below average to average to mediocre. And, 100%. you know, throughout history, that's not really how you change things. And so, so yeah. And, and then also, I think there's a massive, massive, massive role for for-profit startups to play. And I think that- Give me an example. Give me an example there. Well, I mean, you got to, you just have to look at it, you have to look at opportunities. So if you're- um there's a really great startup out of out of Rwanda called Zipline, mm-hmm. and what they do, the problem that they solve for is they families in rural Rwanda that live outside of you know access to city and hospitals. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes them a really long time to get medicine, so mm-hmm. they have mm-hmm. you know the roads, and it just takes them a long time to go get medicine. So what Zipline did is they said, "Wow, that's a pretty big problem. You have to come up with a new way to solve it." So um, yeah. they said, "How can we get them quick medicine?" Uh, drones would be cool. And yep. they created a drone logistics technology car- company that delivers uh, medicine to families in rural Rwanda and drops it off in front of their, their home. Pretty who incredible. Pay, who pays them though? Right? Like who, how, uh, the, 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 gov- the government. Okay. okay. Um, so, so the government pays them and they have, uh, 
you know, it's a, it's a big market. Um, they actually just passed a billion dollar valuation. They have extremely high impact. And if, you know, you were an investor and employee, there's also um, really good returns financially. So more places, that to me is a really exciting example because you have to have, you have to have these new innovations like that. And I don't think current nonprofit, the majority, gosh, at least 99% yeah. of current yeah. nonprofits are not structured to create a drone logistics innovation, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, it's totally, not going to do it. It's yeah, like they don't, no, have the, they don't have the team. They don't have the money. And it's not their fault. It's just how the yeah. system's set up. It's, it's how the system's and set so, up. Yeah. And it's like the government's not going to do it either. So, so would you, would you, you have ever, to have a lot of for-profit startups that get into the game? I, and I, and I, I think that's exactly what needs to happen. I, I think that's, I think that the for-profit marketplace can actually solve education. It could solve For poverty. Sure. It could solve food insecurity. A lot of these areas, I think usually individuals that, you know, start those innovative companies, start innovative companies in, you know, SaaS products, right. Or, or whatever, rather yeah. than looking at food insecurity, how can we solve that? How can we create a business plan around that to, to really scale? And also I think it takes an investment, right. And it's that totally for, for investors out there to invest in companies that, you know, maybe they're not going to have a billion dollar valuation, right? Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it's oh, only, yeah. it's, maybe it's only a $25 million company, right? But it's like solving food insecurity, right? So I think yeah. investment plays a huge role in the same venture capitalists that are like, like donating to New Story, right? Donating to all these nonprofits. Yeah. They can invest in companies, right? For example, like I'm just spitballing here, right? But like sure. if New Story started up, for-profit entity right in the United States, right? To solve right. homelessness, right? Or, or stop, mm-hmm. s- solve like, you know, decay, like building schools in very rural areas, right? Or, or mm-hmm. building housing in rural areas or inner cities and stuff like that. Then could the government, you know, pay, you know, new story, the for-profit entity to, to help solve the homelessness problem in America, right? Like these are, these are things that I would like to see happen. Right. Because, but again, those revenue models are hard. You're depending on essentially governments to pay, which is always a, a bit, a bit sort of difficult because they have budgets that change every, every so often. So I, I do think that the, the for-profit model has the ability to solve these problems faster. And yep. I think it's more, much more innovative. I just think the system is just not set up that way. Right. Correct. Um, is, right. is there, is there, and I'll, and I'll, I'll wrap up here soon, I promise, but is, yeah. is there a way that, there can be sort of an, to me, I look at the 501c3 and sort of the innovation around legal statuses where mm-hmm. maybe there's a non, maybe there's a nonprofit status that actually does pay taxes, right? Maybe it's just 1%, right? But it's something, but they still get the tax benefits, right? The donors still get some things, but the nonprofit yeah. pays a little bit of taxes to where there's a sort of a hybrid model a little bit. You know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if there's something there's something that can be innovated within the legal status and structure of a nonprofit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, I, I haven't spent enough time on it, but it's. I think it's a. It's worth exploring. I think that you could probably start a whole nonprofit that's dedicated to this some kind of mission like this. Right. Um, it's actually something I would like to be involved with, which is like a helper. But yeah, yeah. It's it's just it's a, it's a, it's changing the perception in the system that I think cycles and governs and caps uh, what could and should be at mm-hmm. these organizations. And if I'm telling you, if you could, if you could, if you can have better incentives, and I don't know the answer to that, um, bigger things. I mean, look at 
Uh, I don't know if I want to go there with this one. All right, I'll try not to know the details, so I'll just give it as like a very high level example. Sure. Because I don't know the details. But look at what SpaceX has been able to do in a very short period of time, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Compared yep. to some of the plans that NASA had. And I'm not sure. mocking sure. NASA. No. I love NASA. No, it's amazing. But when you think about the what 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 is SpaceX? It's people, mm-hmm. right? It's yeah. people that left certain places to join them. Yep. Right. And yep. so it's not like they came in and like had all these magic secret tricks that no, NASA didn't know about forever. They just got the best people. Yep. And what if that, what if you could do that for food insecurity? Right. Mm-hmm. What if, what mm-hmm. if you had the, the same talent that was working at SpaceX to focus on food insecurity for five years? Mm-hmm. Like what, like what do you think would happen? Right. And Good the, things. the problem is you compare, it's just, it's just a, it's a completely different world of what that team could probably get done mm-hmm. versus, you know, any other organization mm-hmm. or government. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, so I like, I usually like to end on the future a little bit. And, and, you know, I know it's a, we didn't even really touch on COVID and if that's affected you know, a lot of the builds are not, you know, maybe, maybe another time we'll, 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 we'll get mm-hmm. to chat again, but I, I like to look at the future and, and, and what, you know, three to five years looks like. What are some of the goals you guys have set? What are some of the missions and successes you want to see within these, you know, next three to five years, let's say? Yeah, for us, you know, we're still a pretty young organization. This is our fifth year. So we have a, a lot to learn and a long way to go, but, you know, success to us is, is, um, is really twofold. Um, number one is, we have uh, very clear goals of how many homes and communities that we want to build ourselves as one organization. And, you know, in the next five years, we hope that would probably surpass 25,000 homes and a little over 200 communities, Hmm. which is great. So that's kind of goal number one. But then goal number two is how do we have an impact outside of just our direct organization's capacity? And how do we influence and help other nonprofits and government. So how do we turn a lot of what we're doing inside out and provide templates and technology and processes that others can use to be more effective and more efficient? Mm-hmm. And then we mm-hmm. measure the, the how many people are they touching through what we help them with. And that to us is how you have a much bigger number and a much bigger impact. So those are the two things that we're really working on. Amazing, my man. We'll, we'll keep, keep just pursuing everything. I mean, Give big props to to the to you and the team. I think the journey so far has been unbelievable, man. I, I just uh, oh, thank you. I, I hope that. I hope that people look at at you guys as, as sort of a benchmark in, in what sort of the new generation of of nonprofits can be and nonprofit teams and, yeah. and how, how that structure is built, how that how you can scale nonprofits like you could scale companies. I just think the thought yeah. process needs to shift a little bit. And I think you guys are an A plus model for it. So, you know, keep, keep grinding, man. Keep, keep uh, fighting Thank the good fight and, and just, uh, just keep doing your thing, man. Congratulations on everything so far and best of luck in the future. All right, man. Take care. Blessings.